So hello and welcome. And today I'm very excited to be joined again by Tommy Miles. Tommy is an independent researcher. Uh, we have spoken to him before on France Afrique and the situation in Mali in Burkina Faso. Today we're focusing specifically on the recent events in Niger, particularly the coup that took place uh, within the past few weeks. So maybe we can start there and we can work through some of the history that, that leads up to this. Before we begin, maybe you can discuss a little bit about the research that you do into Nigerian history and politics and how it can inform some of the analysis that you're seeing and, and conducting of the situation. Okay, great. Um, I'm uh, at this point an independent researcher. I was a, a, a PhD candidate many moons back, uh, and uh, my specialty was um, studying French fascism. Uh, as directed through the colonial experience in, in French West Africa and uh, French Central Africa. Um, and uh, in doing so, I, I studied in Dakar uh, and uh, spent time in Bamako and uh, Nyame. Um, and... Uh, I've always been involved in left-wing politics of various sorts, uh, and so that informed my my approach. And um, it's really since leaving academia that um, I spent more time studying Samir Amin and his deep connections to Mali. Of course, he was he was an early uh, economics finance minister brought in, um, and so he had his his research was was about globalism and imperialism was informed deeply by his experience of helping to to put on the right foot which was quickly reversed by a coup um uh a newly independent nation of of mali um so i've been sort of studying and following really following um Nigerian uh, intellectuals and historians and writers um, and Malian uh, uh, writers um, since the 90s um, and commenting when I dare on on Nigerian and, and Malian and Burkinabe uh, affairs. Uh, I'm interested particularly in, in post-independence politics and I don't feel like a lot of people take that particularly seriously, um, especially in the West. Uh, it's one of the things you notice when you spend time um, in West Africa is that there's all of this politics of people and and traditions and 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 uh, ideological fights and and communal uh, uh, discussions uh, that go into political affairs that doesn't really resemble, and the history that they tell doesn't really resemble the history that Western historians, um, when they talk about these emerging nations, uh, tell. They, they tend to think that um, because we've sort of dispensed with a lot of the day-to-day -day parliamentary politics when we talk about Western societies to get sort of deeper level, and we, we all often then eject and don't pay attention to the politics that goes on in, in a place like Niger, and I think it's important. Um, and this obviously is a fairly dramatic uh, incident that's enmeshed into the politics of, of, of really Nigerian politics. 
Absolutely. And perhaps we can begin starting to tell the story where, as you just mentioned, others may not, uh, which is in the immediate aftermath of independence. I think the narrative of the coup on July 26th of this year has focused primarily on events within the past few decades, but hasn't discussed entirely the history of uh, the IMF, uh, of French neocolonialism with the CFA Frank, um, and particularly of uranium mining as a key factor within all of this. So perhaps we can start there and talk about the initial uh, post-independence period and also uh, the first coup in, in the 1970s, uh, the imposition of the IMF, uh, and, and also with uranium mining as a key factor along the path here that uranium was supposed to be this mineral that could play a role in the development of an independent society, but in the end serve more as a resource curse than anything. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, sadly not a unique story in West Africa of the, the resource curse. Um, Though at the same time, these resources, especially uh, bringing on now refined petrol, uh, is is a great hope uh, that Nigerians have a great point of pride, um, and is also something that's sort of instrumentalized and uh, by Bretton Woods institutions and. Um, that they have very specific plans for what a society that has oil or uranium or gold or coal or whatever resources, they have very specific ideas of how that should be instrumentalized to promote their specific form of capitalist development. Um, and Nigerians, like Nigerians and others, often have very different priorities. So um, the colony uh, of Niger that was separated in and out of French West Africa um, in different forms uh, a number of times from around 1900 to uh, 1960 um, was in the last, say, 20 years, especially after the Second World War, um, a place where um, French colonial officials spent a lot of time and effort to sort of just to catalog and to investigate what resources um, the country might have. Um, French colonialism in West Africa was, in some contrast, in fact, to, to French colonialism in Central Africa, uh, was uh, fixated upon finding useful um, resources, whether those are agricultural resources, whether in the case of what's now Burkina Faso, those were human resources. Burkina Faso was separated out as a labor pool. Uh, in folks familiar with British colonialism in Southern Africa will recognize that. Um, but in the 20s and 30s, there was not really any attention to things you dig out of the ground. There was not even gold mining. Um, it was really after the Second World War that the French uh, tried to look for oil and found uranium in um, a seam that runs from Algeria into, to some extent, Mali, but then down through Niger and, in fact, down through what's now the Central African Republic, which there's also uranium mining there. Um, 
and not unlike the seams that were found in Namibia, which is being exploited and now is is really the favored African uranium source. Um, oil was also discovered and deemed not to be um, economic, uh, as in Mali, there are thought to be oil fields or, or the, there's the right um, geologic structure for oil fields. But they're in the far north um, in uh, areas that are not accessible by vehicle generally. Um, and the French also, unlike the British, really failed spectacularly in their disinterest uh, in building rail lines. So uh, a perennial part of um, Malian politics in the last 30 years has been the repair or rehabilitation uh, of the rail line to Dakar. But there really is no other rail line um, that reaches out from, say, Burkina Faso uh, north. Uh, and um, in Niger, uh, there's been much talk of Bolloré, the, the, the big French multinational, got a contract to build a rail line from Benin. Uh, Benin is Niger's main port. Uh, there's a free port there that exists just for exports uh, from Niger. And... Uh, Successive governments have talked about extending this rail line, and it has never succeeded. They, in fact, uh, laid tracks uh, out of Nyamit going south, and they are in mothballs or overgrown now. So these these uh, the French really had no interest in in trying to to provide even useful from a colonialist standpoint infrastructure um, when they began mining uranium in the far north um, at Arlit. They built what was called Little Paris, a, a small little town um, that was, in fact, uh, near several oasis towns and was in an area that pastoralist communities moved through, uh, but an entirely new town and separate from the older, more famous Agadez, um, and built a uh, major highway, Route Nationale 1, that, that ran from Arlit uh, down to Nyame and then off to Benin. And uh, with the road to Difa were the two main highways in the country for many, many decades. Uh, and the joke was always that, you know, uh, none of the highways were taken care of, but the road from the Arlit mines was always retard. Um, so going forward a little bit, the, the French in 2009, uh, in the middle of the resource boom, price boom, um, agreed a whole new set of mining contracts uh, for around Arlite for the, the major mines there. Uh, and this was at a moment in which their older mines that had been absolutely crucial to, to the French uh, nuclear program, the French civilian power nuclear program, that these were being mined out. Um, big open air, open pit mines. Um, what happened was that the French made sort of a whole series of backroom deals with the uh, the pre the administration at the time, um, Tanja Mamadou, and... Um, laid a large lump sum 
And the problem being, we don't know where all of that went. And the problem for Nigerians was that they didn't know where it all went. Um, an upfront payment. Um, and this was a, obviously a, a boon for the Nigerian administration, but how much it actually went to, to normal folks, we'll never know. Um, it also empowered Tanja Mamadou, who is just coming out of an insurgency in, in the general area where Arli was, a, a ethnic-based, but as much as anything, a political uh, barren sort of based um, insurgency. Um, it empowered him to feel that he could uh, rewrite the Constitution and give himself extra terms. Uh, this resulted in the last previous coup in 2010. Uh, he uh, enacted a new republic with a new constitution um, and reset his term limits uh, and found himself one morning overthrown in a fairly bloodless coup led by a low-level general named Salud Jibo, who, uh, as is the custom, uh, agreed after with ECOWAS, uh, high-level ECOWAS delegations to uh, um, bring down the level of conflict, to schedule new elections, and to not stand in those elections. Now, he did quite well for himself, um, was uh, promptly sent off to be in charge of a UN peacekeeping mission someplace, but returned in a suit and... Uh, reputedly now has large business interests and uh, those extend into and out of the military. Um, and that brought to power the, the administrations that of the PNDS, um, one of three or four major historic parties that came out of liberalization in 1991, uh, brought the PNDS to power as, as the sort of the last in turn. These parties sort of took it in turn to be elected um, where people invested hopes in each of them, uh, which pushed ahead their their constituencies ahead of the others. Uh, and it was really the PNDS that was the last to, to receive an overwhelming mandate. All previous parties had, in fact, as in 96 uh, and 2009-10, uh, been overthrown by coups. Uh, in 96, um, the general uh, IBM, uh, Ibrahim Barre Masonara, um, made the mistake of thinking that all the sort of acclamation that you see today in Nyame was durable. Uh, and with the nod and wink, really, of, of Chirac and French officials at the time, decided that he was going to run for president. And he did. And they fixed the elections quite clearly. And he won. And then Within three years, uh, he found himself, well, dead. Uh, he was walking to his helicopter one day, and somebody turned an anti-aircraft machine gun on him. Um, so there are a set, and we see in the events from just today in Niger, there is a set of sort of unwritten political rules around coups. Um, and what is... Scary to many, I think, this time, um, whether they're Nigerians or U.S. foreign policy people or anyone, uh, is that 
some of those sort of unwritten agreements aren't really being followed at this point. Um, so the idea was, as in 99, the generals take over, they make a quick agreement with ECOWAS, ECOWAS takes off the sanctions, they schedule elections, they don't stand in the elections, the next in the historic party steps up, wins those elections because they aren't tainted with the previous regime, uh, and we do it all again. Um, two things have, several things, in fact, have really changed here. One the previous administration of the PNDS under Isifu, um, one of the historic leaders from 91, a social democrat. He was, in fact, um, chair of uh, Socialist International for a while in the 90s. Um, he's created what they call a guri system. Uh, Derisively, his supporters wouldn't call it that. Um, a system of buying off essentially every other political leader and co-opting every other political leader. And but for a handful, Hama Amadou being one of them, um, everyone joined this grand coalition, created in some cases left the main parties and created new parties of their own uh, to join this grand coalition. So this was this was the political structure that Mazum, who had been interior minister and an old hand PNDS, uh, took over. Um, and uh, so in 2014, there's this continuation, but we're seeing more and more evidence now of, of a uh, internal conflict within the elites. Um, so the initial rumors that came out of folks in Yame was, well, this is these are all Isufu's men. Um, the 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 man who's the interim leader, uh, Chiani Abdul Rahman General Abdul Rahman Chiani, uh, was Isufu's right hand head of the presidential guard. Um, and what informed sources such as they are uh, think at this point was that. As with a number of people who came from Isfu's administration, Bazoum was going to ease him out, uh, and that he took advantage of the the uh, impending National Day, um, the Republic Day that commemorates the 1960 uh, founding of a republic, which was later a year later made independent. Uh, took advantage of this that what was going to happen is in in Niger to show um, the, the um, continuity between all of the regions and the equality of all of the ethnic groups, one of the things they do is that for big celebrations, they move them to a different regional capital every time. So this year was scheduled to be in Difa, which is at the far other end of the country down a long, long road. It's a 12, 16-hour drive, a long way away. Um, and the the regular army, many of them were preparing to and were on their way to Difa, uh, the other end of the country. And so the thought was, even though Bazoum had had left the country to go to various things, he'd gone to the, the Russian summit, um, uh, that it was this that that uh, gave uh, Chiani the opportunity to uh, take power, something that he had been working on for some time, unbeknownst to everyone else. Chiani had actually... Uh, helped uh, um, uh, 
quash an attempted coup right as Bazoum was taking over in 2014 from, from other military folks. So he was seen as a loyalist, but the, the rumor is that he was being eased out and did not care for this. Um, now, what we start to get into one of the other differences here, which is given the situation in the region and international, uh, the coup leaders this time uh, profess a great ideological uh, uh, motivation, um, a uh, anti-French neocolonial motivation, um, as in Mali, as in Burkina Faso, as in to some extent in Guinea, um, where coups have taken on a populist, uh, popular uh, anti-French uh, um, government uh, tinge to them, not just tinge in Mali, a, a real concerted attempt to finally, after so many decades, separate themselves from all of the sort of tentacles of French business and government that that shape these countries in ways that even someplace like Nigeria is unimaginable. Um, and so that, of course, is in fact popular. Um, we don't have good um, uh, polling data for Niger. Unlike Mali, there, there aren't regular uh, uh, scientific popular opinion polls, but um, we have what people say and what people will tell you and, and, and uh, popular demonstrations. This is not to say that PNDS was seen as uh, by everyone as being some terribly oppressive party, though we did put people in jail. Um, and it did, um, and I think to its detriment, and this is where uh, Professor Roman Adrisa has, has uh, picked out this as, as one of the things that led to it. They did, by co-opting the entire political class, leave no political part of parliamentary political opposition to oppose the government, uh, which means only you know, popular street revolt, which is rare in places like Niger, uh, or coup. Um, and if those are the only tools that are left, that's, that's what we get. Um, one of the things that's happened just today or overnight is that I believe every living former prime minister, except for the one that, that was overthrown, uh, and the only uh, opposition, one of three living former presidents, signed a letter saying to ECOWAS and to Tanubu in particular, uh, saying um, the sanctions, which are the sort of the fallback of ECOWAS. Tanubu had pushed first for military intervention, as in the Gambia model, um, and was shot down by you know his own senators who said, we, we're not going to vote for that, and was told by even the most loyal French creatures, such as Mamet Debi, that Chad would not be taking part. And of course, Mali and Burkina Faso, this deepened their already uh, growing um, international alliance between these coup governments, but also anti-French neocolonial government. Um, 
to say, not only will we not take part, uh, they're suspended from ECOWAS, um, but that we will consider that an act of war on our countries. Um, so the backup was a series of very draconian uh, uh, sanctions. Uh, and to have basically the entire political class apart from the immediate uh, PNDS officials who were overthrown and Isfu Mamadou uh, come out and say, this is terrible. This will hurt the Nigerian people who work hard and don't uh, have enough problems as it is. And that you should, ECOWAS needs to sit down with the military and find a diplomatic, peaceful solution. And that's essentially code for, all right, set an election date, get them to agree that they won't stand and we'll do the whole thing again. Uh, and that's where we are even this morning. So um, Tanubu's gamble, and he's, uh, you know, it'd be interesting to have somebody who is an expert on, on Nigerian politics. Um, Tanubu's gamble, which is like a number of the things he's done since taking office, the, the first being the bombshell, bombshell, the, the dramatic um, vow to remove petrol subsidies. Um, which is one of the wish list policies of the IMF World Bank, um, but also supported by many people within Nigeria in the thoughts that, well, this is what capitalist economies do, and you have free market economies, and this is going to help us. Um, but the effect of which is to make everything much more expensive, everything, not just filling up your, your bike or your your car, but but every good more expensive in, in Nigeria where things are already too expensive. Um, so Tinubu has come into to power doing these bold things, some of which, not all of which, some of which could be seen as essentially stalking horses for the IMF, Bretton Woods institutions. And this in particular, it's been meeting with the French and the French are clearly demanding that uh, Bazoum be reinstated, um, but are not going to do it themselves. But there was talk that U.S. and French forces would provide intelligence and overflights and all these sorts of things for any planned ECOWAS invasion. Um, and that's clearly not going to happen at this point, unless Victoria Newland goes rogue and you know shows up with gun, which could happen. It would be an utter disaster. I mean, uh, I, I spend a lot of time talking to, to West African and Western um, academics and uh, um, analysts, let's say. Um, and their politics can be fairly conservative, or at least they can be sort of, I, though I try to avoid them, shading into sort of Atlantic Council sort of thing. Um, and to see most everyone from that crowd, African and, and French and British, I know, sign an open letter in a, a French publication a couple of days ago saying, don't, don't do this invasion thing. Just this is that's a disaster. It will create an absolute catastrophe for the people of Niger, but also all of their neighbors. I mean, we're already weakened states facing insurgencies. Um, not able to to historically to cover their own budgets because of trade rules as they are um, and trade deals as they are to to interject what could turn into a long drawn out war would be madness but it 
does seem to be the position of the French in the United States. Blinken seems to be, that's the way to solve it. And, uh, and Bazoum gets in Washington Post and says, yeah, you got to invade. You got to put me back in power. The idea that Bazoum is going to be put back in power and things are just going to go along as normal uh, is incomprehensible. I can see why he believes it, but I cannot see even why the U.S. State Department people believe that that is anything but a fantasy. It's over for us, uh, and he needs to accept that. Whether that's right or wrong is a different question, uh, but practically speaking, it's it's over for his, his government and his regime, and uh, Nigerians are fairly fairly united as we far as we can tell in demanding that. Now, those who are not united are the PNDS militants who are having a march uh, again in a couple of days, which will be illegal and will probably be suppressed. Um, in Inyame, that's, that's a big group of people. Um, and uh, yesterday, uh, the historic uh, rebel leader from northern uh, a certain faction of Tuaregs. I don't want to. I don't want to 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 lump all Tuareg folks who are uh, a diverse community, uh, but from a certain faction of Tuareg, the historic leader Risag Bula, uh, who was the major um, establishment rebel leader in the 1990s insurgency. Uh, and then lent his name essentially to the 2007 insurgents, um, but was integrated after the last coup really into the whole Guri system, uh, given titles, made a uh, presidential advisor, uh, given all sorts of power and all of his, he, he was wanted for murder in fact. Um, all of his past crimes as sponge. He released a letter yesterday, and who knows whether he wrote it or, or, or somebody else put him up to it, saying he was founding an organization called the CRR or something, uh, and that they were going to, that all patriots should take arms and put Bazoum back in power by any means necessary. Um, that's a da that's that's dangerous in a a a society that has a lot of factions and a lot of power power bases spread across regional and ethnic uh, groups and and just political uh, networks that have developed over time. Um, he's come back from worse, obviously. If nothing comes of it, uh, he'll be reintegrated. But if people take up arms, that's going to be a problem. Just to pick up on on something you just said, so I think a lot of people following the situation see that there, the likelihood of an ECOWAS invasion is diminishing rapidly, but nevertheless, the U.S. has uh, removed humanitarian assistance and is supporting the you know draconian punitive measures that w would try and force this unlikely outcome, and it does make you wonder with the infrastructure that exists in the country with, uh, for example, I think a lot of people following this were surprised to see it happen because Niger sort of became the rear base after the withdrawal uh, of Operation uh, Servan from Burkina Faso and, and Mali and moved all of the French troops there and the U.S. has bases there. So some of the surprise came out of the fact that, well, if this is the rear base of 
the the neo-colonialists in West Africa now what now that there's been a coup there so i wonder your thoughts going forward what what could be the the possibilities in the future considering that niger is so important to the west as a a rear base um uh, obviously it's hard to say um my particular ideological point that i uh argue with people about and and again i, I point people back to professor romana drisa uh, who, who both writes uh, as a scholar, political scientist who both writes on these things, but also has a blog uh, that he updates. He's been updating every day. Um, and uh, I disagree with many of the things that he says, but not with his knowledge of, of the political uh, community and the, the way politics is built on a larger society. Um, he really uh, um, is saying that, well, we'll get things back on track and that these are individual um, political problems and that, as you'll hear a lot of people say, well, these military men, as in Mali, are using this um, rhetoric of anti-neocolonialism, pan-Africanism, um, and nationalism. Um as a smokescreen to retain power. And they, they may individually be, uh, but they are able to because it is in fact popular. Not so popular that parties that have professed uh, those ideological positions have won elections any time in the past, but um, with a young population, um, there is an almost general agreement from the people I talked to that the post-91 system in Mali and Burkina Faso, uh, and uh, especially in Niger, is not working, is not delivering a better life for people. Uh, I mean, it's as simple as that. And so I come back to the example of, of the sort of round robin of the major parties in, in Niger, and there are none left. There's not a new one to come in and because you know this happened in Mali as well. Um, IBK was was an interior minister in the '90s, and he was briefly prime minister, and he wasn't very popular when he was a prime minister. So he was kind of out of the main centers of of uh, the top level of governance for a while. So after the Sonogo coup, uh, and after the return to democracy. Uh, he was sort of the last best hope. People said, okay, he's the guy who hasn't been in. You need to give him a shot. Well, he did the same outcomes as before. So at a certain point, people say, this whole thing is not working. This whole package we were delivered in 91 um, across the region, across Africa, across the world of saying parliamentary democracy, regular elections in which people turn over power. That's the, the Mo Ibrahim saving saving grace of everything is. And Isufu was the hero. You know, Isufu has been feted around the world because he was the first Nigerian president to hand over, serve his two terms, win elections, hand over power to, to somebody else in a nominally free election and not try and... Um, in a public way, at least, retain huge economic interests. Of course, privately, that's a different matter. Um, so there is a popular sentiment 
that all of these coup uh, governments have been turning to, that is real. People are fed up. They don't see a future. Uh, and this is, I was just reading uh, the Survive Collective in, in France that does wonderful work on French uh, neocolonialism, on France Afrique. Uh, they released a pamphlet in 96 after IBM's election, um, the coup election, they put himself in power. Uh, about how the French sort of acceded to, all right, this is stability, we'll just take this. And it was really the supporters of all of the major parties that had been overthrown coming together and the public in general, uh, despite him stealing the election, went to tremendous efforts to protest, to vote, to put their faith in this, uh, these, these set of essentially Western norms that people were given in 1991 and said, this is the way forward. There's, you know, liberal democracy, parliamentarianism, and oh, by the way, uh, the IMF will tell you how to run an economy and you will develop and democracy and development go hand in hand. And I've seen people, people who I know and trust, but still saying uh, one guy in particular, um, I was like, well, this is going to put us back 10 years. Back in what process? What was the process that was going on? There's still a faith that, well, if we keep having elections, the development process will we'll get to be Ghana, and then we'll get to be South Africa, and then we'll get to be South Korea. Um, and there's, you know, um, the, the socialist theorists in the 70s um, about these, you know, marginalized economies, we're on to something. It doesn't feel like, or the statistics certainly do not look like, places like Niger are moving up that old uh, Bretton Woods ladder of, of capitalist development upslope. Um, now, I want to be careful. Things are better in a lot of ways. The uh, Nigeria in particular is is becoming a capitalist power. And because of that, um, the economy of Niger, which, which it's highly interlinked to, um, is drawn much more into the world system in some ways that are beneficial. Um, and rural economies, which is most of the economy in Niger, are being transformed ever so slowly, much more slowly than, than northern Nigeria, into wage labor economies, into uh, um, land that can be bought and sold. And in this case, that means traditional holdings being parceled and sold to create a class of rural landowners that did not uh, exist really before. Um, so that transformation is still happening in the background, but it is slow and it is transformation to a capitalist economy, which is also going to be quite difficult for most people to live through. Um, so the frustration, even if it's not articulated in socialist language that Westerners would immediately glom onto, I mean, they're not strong communist, socialist, Marxist groups in any of these countries, maybe Burkina Faso to some extent uh, because of the legacy of Sankara, but 
uh, some, uh, so many people who, who, who hold on to the legacy and uphold the legacy of Sankara are more, more likely to be pan-Africanist nationalists. Uh, and that's, the again, the popular you see in uh, the riots going on and suppression of opposition in, in uh, uh, Senegal going on right now. Since 68, the movement has been to uh, the a pan-Africanist nationalist black consciousness um, movement that is not as interested in something like socialism or Marxism or, or these sorts of things. So that does exist. Those, those socialist groups do exist. Socialist pan-Africanist groups do exist. They're smaller. They're, uh, so the popular feeling on the street, there's Islamist movements, uh, there's, which are, and I think it's important for Westerners to understand, especially in some places like Niger, um, movements for justice, movements for the underdogs, for the lower classes that are, you know, maybe not structured in the way capitalist classes are, but uh, are a combination of the neocolonial sort of class structures and, and pre-existing class structures. Uh, those grievances are most often mobilized in Islamic language and by Islamic movements. Um, and not any Islamic movement. There are powerful Islamic leaders in Niger and Mali especially, uh, and those in Mali going sort of uh, coming into conflict with the, the, the junta uh, that to some degree represent um, conservatism in a almost, and I hate to make these comparisons because they're not right, but in almost sort of feudal way, um, those uh, the way Islam is practiced by many folks in places like Mali has a very traditionalist, very upholding the traditional authorities, those sorts of ideas. Uh, and what happened during colonialism, the upsurge within the colonial period, and it, occasionally people have written on this great deal occasionally sort of with the connivance of french or british authorities uh new islamic movements appeared that were much more in tune with the new islamic popular movements in um, arabia but also in egypt and north africa and these movements in the same way that sort of um Protestant Christianity has grown in some place like Brazil to to as an upwelling of popular movements. And you wouldn't say, oh, you know, the, the Protestant movements in, in Rio are radical in any way, uh, politically radical in every other. But like these movements in West Africa, they are giving a voice to people at the bottom of the ladder uh, to say, you know, Islam teaches us that everyone is equal before God, um, that there is no hierarchy except uh, us and God. Um, and these are revolutionary ideas, and they continue to be a large part of, of what's in these popular movements. Uh, and I don't Sometimes I call them populist and I, I stop myself. I don't because that's so laden these days. 
Um, but they are, are you know, the, the, the debate is how popular are these popular movements in a global sense? And it, it, everybody has a different idea. But there certainly, there are things afoot in West Africa. Uh, and whether or not the nominal leaders of uh, these coups and other political movements, as in uh, um, Senegal, are sincere or going to really create change, I don't think that's an important um, distinction because whether they're cynical or not, they're writing something real. Um, and we see in Basum, and we see in the French and the US, the thought that you simply suppress them or ignore them, uh, it's, it's the contradictions which, is, which are creating all of this. Um, and those contradictions are not gonna go away and they're going to get worse if you put just shove Bazoom back in, or if the French do as they want to do, which is isolate and cut off the Malian regime and the Burkinabe regime, uh, and now the Nigerian regime, uh, and suppress them and return to the post-91 norms, these things are not going to go away. I mean, the, the exit that's being made from this neocolonial system uh, by some place like Burkina Faso right now, uh, there was something I saw in passing just yesterday in which... Um, that was one of the things that spurred the the final cutoff of all French humanitarian aid in Burkina Faso uh, last week or earlier this week. Uh, but this was a move by the Burkinabe government regime, depending on your point of view, which they suppressed, amongst other things, a 1965 uh, trade agreement, uh, tax and trade agreement with France, and there are tons of these agreements um, that both from the moment of, of independence and repeatedly thereafter that the French have made bilaterally or with uh, a number of countries uh, that include all of the tricks and little stings in the tail that you, we know so well from how the IMF and Bretton Woods institutions operate. So this in particular was saying to avoid double taxation, which would be unfair, um, French, Franco Burkinabe businesses or individuals should only be taxed in one locality. And by default, that's France. So if you're selling horse hides or used cars or um, Maji cubes or whatever, and you're French uh, or have French and Burkinabe citizenship, or your, your company is uh, um, incorporated in France, um, you not only don't pay any taxes to Burkina Faso, you're paying the taxes on the trade done in Burkina Faso back to the French treasury. I mean, that's, that's both so prosaic and sudden and very stunning when you think about it that all these it's it's not a big people people pitch 
French neocolonialism as well, uranium or some big thing. And it, it is those, but those have become really marginal over the years. Um, what it is, it's all these little things. Uh, it's all of these little rules and laws and traditions and acceptance from the elites in, in West African states of these little unfair things which funnel little bits of money maybe by a global measure, but important by the people who receive them, who go and go to the Elysee and say, we have to have this, this, and that, um, that funnels this money back to France. Uh, linking these economies in ways even neocolonial sort of relationships with Africa don't do. Um, and it's one of the things that I always, when people talk about AFRICOM, um, AFRICOM in East Africa is a real military, I mean, they've got a war they're fighting. And to some extent in Niger, they've got a war they're fighting. Um, but for the most part, what AFRICOM does is it has big training sessions and little training sessions and uh, big maneuvers and little maneuvers going on continually with every arm of the U.S. military and anybody in NATO that they like. And almost always those things are charged back to, say, the U.S. government. So that they'll fly over, you know, 10 guys who used to be in the military and they'll give a speech about how you're not supposed to shoot prisoners or some something like that, that everybody knows. And it's not. And it, even if it happens in the U.S. context, military context or in the West African military context, everybody knows you're not supposed to. So it's not news. But they'll sit these guys down in the Radisson Blue for three days in in Bamako and Nornyame, and they'll uh, have all the officers sit around and they'll trade pins and talk to each other. And then those guys will bill the US government for you know $50,000 for that. And the Pentagon pays it and those guys get rich. And when the AFRICOM people retire, they go and do that. And it's it's entirely on the model of Western NGOs, which is just they're not producing anything. They're not changing anything. They're just charging back to the French government, um, you know, a good living. Um, and so all the, you know, this that was the initial reaction. There was this draw of French aid. It was like the French aid just it's French people charging the French government to give speeches. It's not nothing ever happens to that. Nothing, you know, no progress is made with that. And some of it's well intentioned even, but it's within a a system of that's being the norm. So if we lose French aid, you know, hallelujah. Um, so this is, this is the upwelling. This is the transformation. The French are, and I've had people who are fairly conservative who are really in the know, unlike me, with stuff that goes on in, in both the French and foreign ministry and French military and the U.S. military and the U.S. Um, State Department. At the time when things were breaking down with the Malian junta in 21 after the second coup, saying, I don't understand why the French are behaving like this. Hey, get the foreign minister out there shouting at people, French foreign minister, uh, and damning various people to hell in public. And it's just seemingly counterproductive things. So the French can't get their heads around this. They can't understand what's happening. And 
I, I saw a thing yesterday from Jeune Afrique leaked uh, ECOWAS document where the ECOWAS complained that the Nigerian coup leaders had at the last minute through the foreign ministry, Nigerian foreign ministry, canceled a negotiating session. Uh, Jeune Afrique splashed this all over over their headlines. It was like, see, they're 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 intractable and authoritarian, and aren't are they doing this? Every time they do this, they make them look better. They make the Nigerian coup look better to their own population. And the French do not understand that because there are a number of Nigerians and Malians and Bukinabe folks and, and people from all over who are offended by that. And those are the people they talk to. Uh, there's a tremendous number of people in, in all of these countries who were educated in France or educated in the United States or educated in Britain. Um, and share the values and the belief in the development process and the role of democracy. And I'm not going to say whether they're the largest number or the smallest number, because I don't think that's really fair, but there are a hell of a lot of people in these countries who don't believe any of that. Um, not because they necessarily believe in something else, but because they simply, that's not in their experiences and that's not, it hasn't, hasn't panned out for them. And this is what France and those communities within West Africa are coming up against right now. And it's not going anyplace. Uh, and my worry is that US only cares about Russia and maybe Bretton Woods institutions, but because these are marginalized economies, they don't really care that much about Bretton Woods institutions doing much here because they don't I mean, by the standards of the rest of the world, they're not huge loans. Um, they're not huge investments. Uh, the United States has shown time and again that it would allow Niger to be marginal and sit there and not really develop in a capitalist sense and not have big U.S. investments. That's fine. They don't care. Um, but they do care about this new Cold War, and they do care that the Russians are seen to be there. And as Basum in his Washington Post editorial and as lots of other people have shown, uh, you can go to Western capitals and say the Russians are going to take over. And even if that is hokum, uh, it motivates people in the State Department uh, to first find Niger on a map and then uh, call for any sort of sanctions they want. They've already, the US government has already nominally over human rights abuses, which should not be poo pooed. There clearly have been human rights abuses, uh, have sanctioned a number of military officers in the, the Malian transitional authority slash junta, depending on how you, you say. Um, and they're ready to do more. Uh, the U.S. clearly from its, its outward appearances would have been very happy if the Nigerians had rolled tanks over the border uh, with no conception that that would have been bonkers, that that would have gone terribly wrong. Um, they don't really care what happens to people in that country. Uh, they do care now that they've got this base with between 1,000 and 1,100, and we only know that because of Nick Terse's reporting. Um, troops up in Agadez. Uh, and I saw yesterday or the day before somebody pulled up in flight aware that US was still doing its uh, 
uh, troop rotation, staff rotation flights between the the big airport in Yame, which is now half a military airport and half a civilian, less than half a civilian airport, and <clears throat> Agadez, where the U.S. camp is. Um, these are camps. They're installations. They're not bases. They're not bases because Bazoum said there would be no U.S. or French bases on, on Nigerian soil, so consequently, they are installations, but they're bases. Um, one thing that you did mention that I think should be clarified, Niger isn't France's primary fallback for Serval. Uh, Chad is. There are 4,500 troops in the region. Uh, and and Chad and its coup leader president, son of the last coup leader president, Mamad Debbie, um, hosts most of the French forces. But they're also hosted in Gabon, where they've always been, in Cote d'Ivoire, where they've always been, in Dakar, where they've always been. Um, one of the uh, one of the northern political. Uh, how should we say this? Uh, pundits who on the internet and is a known figure, so he is, exists on far more than the internet. Uh, gentleman uh, who is enmeshed in Malian insurgencies um, in the north um, posted something the other day where he took a video of um, Rafal jets on tarmac and said this was this is the, the rafael jets of of the senegalese are landing in yame right now this is a video of it well it turned out to be a two-year-old video of french rafael jets in dakar uh, because despite having not necessarily public basing senegal's always at least for the moment i guess things change is always going to be like Cote d'Ivoire, where you'd think things would change, or Gabon, or Chad, a completely safe place for the French to, to move, whether they have a formal base or not. Uh, and Niger was getting to be that point. It had never really been that, because it was, again, this is the, the uh, lot in life of Nigerians, to be economically marginal, militarily marginal, um, it was crucially important to defend our elite in the earlier insurgencies. Um, but one of the things that Bazoum pushed was new deals on the whatever Areva is now, the, the French uh, quango that, that handles all um, uranium supply to the French state. It's a public-private partnership, as those are popular now, and they've changed the name several times. Um, but that was the organization which Tanja Mamadou had made this nearly billion-dollar deal with for the new generation of mines. What happened after 2009, apart from the coup, was that um, commodity prices plummeted. And the French said, you know what? Mongolian and Namibian and Canadian um, uranium works just as fine. Uh, and you don't have to ship it out in a truck. Um, there's ports nearby. So what the uh, Areva B, whatever their title is now, what they did is they just, and this happens a lot with these sort of mining contracts, they just drug their feet. 
said, oh, yeah, the mine's still on. We're not, in fact, doing any work at it, and we don't have a date in which we will be actually mining. Uh, and Bazoom gave him hell about that because part of the deal is that the state gets a bit from the, uh, the, the amount uh, uh, exported, and they weren't getting anything out of some of these places. Uh, so they managed to launch, uh, I don't actually don't know what the status of the Chinese mine. There was a big Chinese mine at the same time that was, that was launched. Um, they're starting to get some move as this, again, this was going to be an open air mine, open pit mine. And so anybody who lives in Arlie is sucking in, uh, bits of uranium and has been for 30 years. And as is a lot of writing on the terrible ecological toll of this. Um, but so Buzz, exploit us more. Come on, do this. And the French are saying, well, you know, it's not really giving it up. That's the, that's the double-headed thing that, you know, you see in a lot of these mining contracts and, and the, the French and uranium, uranium in Niger, this is their logic, is they're not going to let anybody else have it because they think they may need it someday. Uh, but they're happy withdrawing everybody and putting a fence around it. Um, so they don't want to lose it, but they don't necessarily care too much if it's disrupted for a year or two. Um, so a lot of the talk about uranium that people in the popular press about Niger uranium is a little dated. Um, it used to be 40% of the uranium uh, that was used by the French state came from Niger. That hasn't been the case in a long time. We're down below 15% now. Um, but 15%, if you lose 15% tomorrow, lights are not going to stay on in Paris. That's so it, it remains something really crucial to the French state. Um, notice I've mentioned the Chinese, the, 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 the petrol running out of uh, Niger that they're just launching and testing. And I think we're due this next or the month after to formally launch the uh, uh, new pipeline out to Benin. Uh, that's all a Chinese operation uh, because the Chinese are willing to come in and say, hell, this is not economic for, say, Exxon, um, but it's economic for us to do it. And we'll give decent deals to the countries, and you'll actually be producing, refining the fuel. Um, and you know this is why these sort of win-win partnerships with the Chinese are so popular in so many of these countries. It's not necessarily ideological. It's it's a win-win in in ways that that, that you know the U.S. and France is just not not going to do. Um, so that's been disrupted as well, and that's maybe a, a much greater resource concern because that was going to be transformational to oil sector, petrol, crude sector. In, uh, in Niger just coming online. Again, I've wandered away from the point to some no, extent. But. No, not at all. It's very, it's, it's very fascinating to listen to it. I'm curious just to go a little bit further back. You were mentioning a bit about uh, Ibrahim Traore and um, mm -hmm. the sort of revival of this kind of Sankarist inspiration, uh, at least in Burkina Faso. You were also mentioning a bit around as you had had started the conversation off with, with reference to Samir Amin, I couldn't help but think around his analysis of delinking uh, when he was in Mali, 
some yeah. of the analysis that I mean, you've you've mentioned Romani Adrisa a little bit, and some of what he's talked about has just been simply trying to figure out why, like, why is it this stretch of countries in the in the Sahel in particular that have been experiencing these coups and these seismic movements, and I wonder, yeah, you know, from whether it's ideological with the kind of Sankarist aspect, or it's the desire to delink, or it's even just the composition of different factors with, as you mentioned, certain factor, certain factions in the Tuareg community or, or even ecological aspects with, yeah. with climate change and desertification, but also, I guess, to think through why, how is it that these movements, uh, have begun as coups, but have also attained mass popularity quite swiftly and have seen no signs of disappearing. I guess that builds to the question of whether you see the position of Mali and Burkina Faso to declare quite openly that they would take an intervention as an act of war, as a sign of a greater yeah. sort of collaboration between these countries. And a, a, there's been a lot of discussion of a possible federation between Mali and Burkina Faso. So how that plays out of a greater kind of unity across these countries. Well, I think the delinking is key here. I mean, it's it's what's are you with the the Russian Ukraine war? This is what everyone's talking about, and everyone's sort of from a certain perspective, at least, sort of hoping for. Uh, and we're all, I think, also finding as we go down this road uh, that the U.S. imperial structure is much more subtle and deep than maybe we necessarily expect um and that currency delinking for instance is a, something we hope for something we want something a lot of people who are rising up into power in these countries certainly want but is a ways down the road so um there was an interesting moment especially in the Malian second coup government in which the French were apoplectic every day. And then you'd hear that, even though there's no formal basing agreement, uh, US Special Forces were conducting operations with the Malian government at the same time. Um, that the US not being the primary on the ground hegemon in these states, was able to take a much more uh, easygoing attitude towards, all right, you can say whatever you want. Uh, as long as you don't cross these lines and one of them being bringing in the Russian, uh, we don't really care. Uh, we can find a way to work with you. Um, it's a thing that also gives me a lot of sleepless nights because the the work of the day is clearly the final destruction of France Afrique. And that's what's seen as the work of the day, both by people on the streets and uh, a number of uh, Traoré's, the, the one who I think is probably most likely a true believer. Um, and it's not a surprise that he's, he's from Burkina Faso because the Sankara's movements uh even if often they don't hit sort of socialist 
themes as much or feminist themes as much still retain a tremendous popularity, uh, a tremendous, you know, a, a tremendous popularity in the way in which um, revolutionary, well, say in which uh, capitalist Russians might say that Stalin and Lenin were great because they made the country great. Um, so there are people who maybe don't necessarily share all of the the beliefs that I, I think you and I as leftists uh, look with awe at in what Sankara brought. But um, it's not a foreign concept to, say, kick out the French. Um, and it's a long time coming. Um, so this is the work of the day of breaking these uh, links with France and the CFA Franc, um, the uh, Nongo Samasila's work on this is the thing that I turn back to or I push on people all the time, um, is under tremendous pressure and has been for the better part of a decade. Uh, even before this wave of coups of uh, these governments, Bazoum's governments, IBK's governments, uh, uh, turning on this system because it is a tremendous burden upon the capitalist development of these economies, um, let alone any better sort of development. Um, so that is coming and it's being aided and abetted and spurred on by the French themselves because they they cannot conscience any any of this falling. There was an open letter from 95 senators and uh, and assembly people and, and political leaders, mostly from the right, but also from Macron's own group. Uh, it was published in, I don't know, Express or someplace uh, yesterday or the day before saying, well, you know, we're, you know, Macron is overseeing the end of, well, uh, of French influence in Africa, and this is a disaster. Now, France Afrique had its time, but it's been long gone. And we, and they specifically said, you know, we don't want to rehabilitate the world of Savon uh, de Braza or uh, Focar, and those are all long dead. But, you know, but. We don't want to, you know, France can't bear to lose this influence. It's like you just change this. Uh, what happens in neocolonialism all the time? You just change the name, you change the structure, the 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 platform on the outside, but it's still this undue influence, this this uh, um, structure of pulling out money and pushing everyone through your own system. You know, pushing every. Every you know bank transfer between somebody using CFA francs and another currency has to go through France. It's, it's that somebody I saw some meme even the other day of somebody saying you know uh, how many gold mines do CFA franc countries have and it's you know 183. How many gold mines does France have? Zero. How much gold reserves do these? CFA franc countries have zero and how much gold reserves, you know, it's, it's not a direct, you know, they're not taking the gold and putting, but through means they end up in the same. Um, so people understand that 
in West Africa for the most part. Um, some don't think it's a big deal. Some do. Uh, but increasingly, the some who do uh, are in the driver's seat. And it, I, it's not going to go away. And the French are doing everything they can to make sure it doesn't go away because they will not compromise. And I increasingly, I feel like this is part of the Macron personality. You saw how he treated his own people uh, when big protests, uh, how he treats also, especially immigrant in second, third, fourth, fifth generation, black, uh, brown, Muslim French people um, with like, you know, we'll turn the water cannons on. Um, and that's, it's the same attitude. Uh, there will be no resistance. Uh, well, they don't have the power to stop that, this resistance. This is going to happen. Um, my concern, again, as, as I said, is this does not target Bretton Woods institutions. This does not target the U.S. It doesn't. I mean, I, I saw a lot of Malians who supported the transition before things started to go sour with the U.S. over Wagner, um, saying what we need is the U.S. Army in here. Throw out the French. Make, make good relations. You know, the, the U.S. Embassy in, in Bamako for, for many years and uh, until very recently would make a big show often, as they do in many places, of, you know, we're going to give out rice, we're going to do training, we'll send people to the United States because it's impossible to get in the United States otherwise if you're Malian. Um, and even arming, you know, we, they, they sent a whole bunch of technicals uh, last year uh, and unveiled them in a big ceremony and said, you know, we're going to support these. And this is the same junta coup government transitional authority that at the same time is saying, uh, Minusma, UN, the French, everybody are persona non grata and even saying, you know, things like the Islamists are an invention of the French. They drop arms to them. They didn't exist at all, which is hokum, but you can see why people believe it, um, especially because the French security services and NGOs and all sorts of people have long networks, long traditions of having networks within northern communities. Um, which is not to say that the rebel groups are creatures of the French. They will deny that, and I think they're right. Uh, but uh, the French have this attitude towards pastoralist communities that is very much like U.S. attitudes towards Plains Native Americans in that they were the worst possible bloodthirstiest caricature devils in the world in French media until the French came in and killed huge numbers of them and destroyed their living, at which point they became romantic symbols of true freedom and chivalry um, and, like in the U.S., named helicopters after them, um, attack helicopters after them. So the French have this weird relation with Tuareg and other other communities in the north that is not really reciprocated at all times. Um, but some people do reciprocate that. So there's there's a really uncomfortable dance here and it it makes the ethnic conflicts ethnic conflicts which develop 
during the decolonization process um, at the fault of both sides within these communities and other communities in places like Mali. It makes those things have never really healed. And um, it's a, individuals on both sides instrumentalize that. Uh, and, uh, and we see it today in, in popular reactions to the Bazoom coup. You know, a lot of people in Kidal will say that Bazoom needs to be brought back, principally because a lot of people in Bamako say that he should never be brought back. Um, it uh, doesn't necessarily go deeper than that, but a lot of people in Bamako will then say, oh, well, the people in Kidal are all in cahoots with the French, and it's, um, it makes it all worse. So th the French are on the way out, but we've said that before. Francia Freak has been declared dead, you know, more times than a cat, more lives than a cat. Um, so we'll see how that happens, but it's time is... Well, it's, it, we've declared that its time has been passed many times before, but it's, it's, it seems unless a new regime comes in in France and reconfigures it in a cleverer, more palatable way, uh, that specific set of relationships is, is doomed. Um, what I don't think people quite think ahead to is what replaces that. And they'll say, oh, well, relationships with uh, a capitalist Russian state is what we need. Well, Russians simply don't have the, the interest or economic heft to do that. Um, Mali, for instance, has very deep relations, had very deep relations with the Soviet Union uh, while having good relations with the United States uh, during the Cold War, uh, and has had very good relations with the Russians, uh, because a lot of Malians went and studied in first the Soviet Union and then Russia and their auto bilateral relations. But the level of trade is nowhere near close to even the level of trade with Belgium or Germany. Um, that's It's not a replacement for the French. And so who will be? Well, you know, the optimistic bourgeois uh, economist might say, well, Nigeria and Benin and, and Mali and Burkina Faso. Uh, the pessimist might say the United States comes in. Or the even worse pessimist in me might say nobody comes in. Uh, and that the, the capitalist development process is stalled because of that. Um, but, you know, cometh the contradiction, cometh the ideology. Um, it's, it's, I don't want to be a cheerleader. The, it's heartening, or at least it is, you can die happy having seen that people in all of these countries are finally making it impossible for the France Africa system to continue. Um, even if that buys them a lot of trouble in the short term. Um, and I have no doubt in the growth of Pan-Africanist uh, movements, some sincere, some famously derided as insincere, um, some socialist, some not at all socialist, uh, the, that these movements are rising in, 
in Burkina Faso, in, in Mali, and everywhere across West, West Africa. Um, and they're the future. Thankfully, going to be African intellectuals and African activists and African academics and African trades union leaders who will form the ideologies of the future, or at least form the opposition ideologies of the future. This is the other thing that always gets me with Westerners coming into to West African politics saying, well, you know, the U.S. did a coup here because they had to overthrow and then use trails off. Well, the guy they overthrew was a creature of capitalist development. And the guy that they put in was a creature of capitalist. There's, the U.S. killed off everybody during the Cold War who was had a chance to develop something other than a capitalist development paradigm. The, the SAPs in the 80s is what did everything in. I mean, it was universal across the board. There were, there were governments in Republic of Congo and Dahomey, Benin, Marxist-Leninists, right? So they had stars on everything and they, they passed out, uh, you know, tracts from Lenin and they gave long speeches and they dressed in fatigues. They did all the things outwardly, but, you know, their 60% of their budget was supplied by the French government and the French continued to have an open hand to, 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 uh, buy majority stakes in the nationalized firms. And so it, there had to be just the contradictions working themselves out. There had to be at a certain point, uh, um, a clearing of the decks of the, the ideological opposition. And it had to also be, and as, as Pan-Africanist and African intellectuals have been trying to tell us in the West forever, and we don't listen, uh, it has to be with African epistemologies and African traditions and African languages and African uh, modes of, of, of organizing and all of these things that we just can't transplant uh, uh, and shouldn't try to. But And in the process, if as an ancillary benefit, we in the left, in the West, have an opportunity to learn a tremendous amount of what effective organizing will look like that these folks are going to be doing in the coming decades uh, in ways that we have not considered. Um, and uh, I think we are, in a small sense, beneficiaries of what African Pan-Africanist and other uh, opposition uh, activists and academics uh, are are doing and are going to be doing, and Mali and Burkina Faso and to now perhaps Niger are going to give these people platforms that they did not have ten years ago to organize. Um, and even if these do not become Sankarist states, uh, they are going to become something that that African activists are going to build themselves. And and uh, um, that's something we should take heart in. Absolutely agreed. And thank you so much for all of this information. Um, I think my last question mm -hmm. would just be, 
what do you recommend for people immediately following? So you've mentioned Ramani mm. Andres' blog a little bit. Any other sources of information people should follow as the situation is evolving? Uh, there are a fair number. There are, uh, you know, people often ask me, you know, so, so uh, which... Um, which pan-Africanist or socialist organizations should I look to in Yame or Taua or Zinder or wherever? And uh, I, I'll tell them two things. One, I'm not there. I don't know. Uh, and two, uh, so ask Nigerians that. Uh, and two, those that are there are small. Uh, are, are, you know, the main, and he's being pushed aside now, the main popular pan-Africanist political figure guy who runs for president. Um, I mean, he, he's, uh, he owns a network of radio stations and TV channels. I mean, he, he, has, he has, has a fatigue cap with a star on it, but he's, he's a capitalist. Um, and he, you know, he's this perennial guy who shows up, but beneath that, there are as yet unformed movements. So, so the most recent one is the M62 movement, which was formed, I believe last year, if I have my dates right, um, on the anniversary of independence. So it's a movement of 62 years, um, that has that called that big rally on the day or two after the coup in Yame. Um, and as we've seen in Mali, these groups start to form and reform and, and some move closer to establishment power, some move farther away from establishment power, but they're, they're, they're in formation right now, these, these organizations. Uh, and so I say to just try and listen as much as possible to Nigerians and Malians who do not all agree, obviously. There is not a Malian or Nigerian point of view. Um, but those folks who espouse Pan-Africanist ideologies, uh, some of whom are from the grassroots, some of whom make a living flying around the world doing it, and you can tell fairly quickly which is which. Um, and just keep your ear on the ground to listen for new movement because we are going to see new, more democratic, more popular uh, uh, revolutionary movements form. Um, in the past, all of these sorts of organizations have sort of been co-opted. I, I, uh, I don't say I would have used the word co-opted, but for I always use the example of Saudi in uh, in. Uh, Mali was the uh, Omar Mariko uh, is the historic figure. He came out of the '91 student movement, so that in '91, in in almost a mirror image in Mali and Niger, uh, there were popular movements against the military dictatorships that had been in power in Niger since 1974 and in Mali since 1968, um, and these quickly led to people being shot down in the streets, students, university students mostly, being shot down in the streets, uh, and popular revolts, which ended in a coup, but were really like the Burkina Faso rising of, of uh, what, 2012, 
2014, uh, were really popular movements. And he came out of one of these student unions and remained the head of this student union until he was 40. Um, and founded this organization called Saudi, which is good. And I, I, you know, their activists are good. They're, they're socialists, they're pan-Africanists, but he always was in parliament in any regime that came in, he was in parliament. Um, and he was always in opposition, but he was always in parliament. And, um, when the military second military coup happened in 21 he was amongst the popular group popular leaders that rose up to to uh welcome that and say all right we can do good things with this but quickly fell out of favor with the military leaders uh and criticized them publicly and consequently he now lives in paris uh because he had to go underground and get the hell out um so there are popular pan-Africanist movements, uh, and there are establishment pan-Africanist movements, and there are people who are good people and ideologically, you know, to a Westerner look right down the line, but are not necessarily in touch with what's happening. It's all change right now. And uh, so, you know, I would say, you know, read African socialists from the past um, recognize that they're not necessarily in charge of movements now those ideologies aren't um, and look to support to the extent that we can which is very little frankly um, uh, popular movements against neocolonialism wherever they they take place and the thing that I always say also is, you know, we're in the belly of the beast, so our work is here. Our work is um, anti-white supremacy work. Our work is global white supremacy work. Our, our work is anti-imperialist work here. Our work is, you know, ending the defense budget and all of those things. That's, that's our work here. Um, but... Uh, we have to, I also think, if we're, we're interested in learning from these struggles, now is a time of great growth and things will be coming in and, and new leaders will be rising up and new movements will be rising up and we'll see in the coming years. And it's, uh, it's exciting for Africans and it's exciting for us because we will learn from these folks. That's what I got. That's, that's, no. that's, that's the really long way to say I don't have a list right. of, no, of people. So, I, you know, follow the, the Servive folks in, yes, in France definitely. and yeah. all the anti-France Afrique folks. Uh, read uh, good French uh, language, uh, African academics and analysts, uh, mm -hmm. but do so with an understanding that, you know, not necessarily communists and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, definitely agreed about about Servi. Um and so yeah. we'll put some some links to that uh to follow with it. But thank you so much. This this was really really good uh and I learned a lot and I'm excited to continue this conversation with you and ask more questions as as we go and uh share it with some other people who are who are following the situation. So I really appreciate it. 
Well, I hope to, to learn as well from you. Uh, your reading list is fantastic. I saw on the, the website the, the your, your, your reading list of, of, of academic and popular and activist works is just stunning. It's things Thanks that so I much. should be getting back. Awesome. All right. Thanks. Take care. Right. Take care. Bye.